All right, it means you're supposed to be a really good example for non-believers, and when you make mistakes, you blow it. And, of course, your witness was, in theory, supposed to be really clean Christian living. All right, so in my mind, with the influences of my life at that time, all I could feel was failure. I had blown it. All of the talking about Jesus and leading the Bible study at the prison, down the toilet, I'd cursed at him and yelled at him, and I had blown my witness. And as I'm walking around outside in the yard uh, where all the plumbing supplies were, I began to think, what am I, I going to do to repair this? And it dawned on me, here's a novel thought for a Christian, maybe I should just say I'm sorry. And so that's what I did. I walked inside, and they were all standing around the counter, and I said, hey, guys, I, I'm sorry I yelled at you and cursed at you or whatever I did. I apologize. Uh, just no excuse. Sorry about that. You guys are right. I'm a, I'm a moron Yankee uh, college boy, you know. And their response was, that's all right. And they just kind of patted me on the back, and we moved on from it. But there was something really important that took place there. And I didn't realize it for a long time to come. But that moment was really the moment when a lot of them said, okay, I want to hear what this guy has to say. You see, they already knew I wasn't perfect. And newsflash, your friends and family know it too. So you have a clash, a choice at that moment. Am I going to pretend things are better than they are? Am I going to try to defend myself? Am I going to posture myself as more put together than I am? Or am I just going to be me? I'm going to be real. Now, our series this month is sharing your faith with tact. And tact, obviously, we're playing on two meanings of the word. One would be just that we all want to be people who can talk to others about our faith without being one of those obnoxious Christians who makes everybody in the office or the neighborhood miserable. All right, so there is a tactfulness associated, a winsomeness associated with being somebody who is a a good communicator of the faith. And as we talked last week, this is pretty much a call for everybody, not just for preachers. All right? You're not uh, called to share your faith just if you're a missionary. Uh, we're all missionaries, according to the scriptures. And so the question becomes, how do we do that in a way that is tactful? The acronym TACT, obviously, means theology, authenticity, carrying, and technique. And this week, we're going to talk about the buzzword of the early part of our 21st century, and that is authenticity. You'll hear people say that. I want to go to a church that's authentic. And, and you kind of try to figure out what that means because it means different things to different people. But I know from my own experience, and I am coming up on my 20th anniversary in pastoral ministry, and in 20 years, I can tell you that my experience has been that many people have ceased going to church or won't go in the first place uh, is because they've encountered people who are phony. They know they're not sinless, and yet they posture themselves as so. With regards to our mandate to be people who tell others about the faith, and this is really part and parcel of why we would start a church, is to revive Christians who then would reach friends. We're not going to anytime soon, in the next century probably, as Prism Church, do a crusade at L.A. Dodger Stadium. I mean, we just don't have the muscle to pull that off. So the way we're going to reach friends is 
each of us, and this is kind of one of those corny old Southern Baptist sayings, each one reach one. You know, we're, we're each going to take the responsibility to say we're going to have one friend or one family member maybe every couple years that we pray and seek after opportunities and we share our faith with them. The way we are collectively going to share our faith with this culture is you, if you're a Christian, with your friends and family and me as a Christian with my friends and family. That's the way it's going to get done here at PRISM. So this is no small subject, this idea of how we are going to accomplish this and what the scriptures have to say about how we do this. One of the major reasons Christians, in my experience, don't venture out to share their faith has more to do with their feelings of incompetence than anything else. Both morally and tactfully, they are afraid to be a bad example of what it means to live the Christian life and or they fear that they're going to be asked a question they don't have the answer for and that'll cause someone to disbelieve. But I really want to drive something home for you today, and it's something that I learned and I'm learning continuously, but it's really a question. What are we communicating both to ourselves and to people who are not Christians if we don't share our faith in concert with the reality of our brokenness? If all they get is like the best part of us and the definition of what it takes to be saved, it if that's all they get, then what they are hearing largely is you can be saved if you have all your stuff together. If all they get from us is, you know, Christianity is about putting your life together and doing it just right. God builds better lives. Listen to me. If that's what, the, if that's what they see in our lives, then that's really not the gospel. The gospel is broken and fallen and struggling people get to have access to and friendship with God in spite of the fact they're, they're struggling. And so I would like to argue today that the gospel frees us to A, be a morally struggling Christian and still testify about God's grace. As a matter of fact, that's the only kind of person that can do it because we're all fallen morally and morally struggling. So there's nobody, they're deluded if they think they got their stuff together enough to be used by God. That's just delusional. We're so far from holiness. So we have to like, kind of get rid of this notion that I'll start like, telling others about Jesus when I get my stuff together. First of all, you're never going to have your stuff together. Secondly, what does that communicate to people? That only God can only use, God can only interact with people who got their crud together. And that's completely not what the scriptures say. But the gospel also frees us to be, admit that we don't have all the answers or understand all the mysteries of God contained in scripture. I have been to seminary, friends. I am finishing a PhD. I've been in ministry for 20 years. And there is not a week go by that somebody doesn't ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. At exactly what point did you think you were going to say, I've got all the knowledge I need to go and do this effectively? I mean, with all the humility I can muster, I have nowhere near the knowledge I need to do all this, but that's the point. You're never going to feel competent. And in fact, God doesn't want you to feel competent. He wants you to feel humble and broken. He wants you to lean on him and him alone because no one can be argued into the faith. Nobody can be convinced to be a believer. This is a spiritual act of God 
opening their eyes to see who he is for real and that he wants to reach them with the gospel, with his love. It is this humility that will testify to the reality of what we talked about last month, that we are righteous in God's sight by Christ alone through our faith. And so when people say to you, how are you comfortable being broken and going to church all the time? It's because Jesus has made us acceptable to the Father. That is what draws us into the presence of God so that we actually do begin to see life change. Now, with regards to our text today, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and, and I'll explain why as we go along. In this context, if you want to know what 2 Corinthians 11 and 2 Corinthians 12 are about, the Corinthian church had come under the influence of what the Apostle Paul sarcastically called super apostles. And the super apostles were these guys with that were completely promoting their agenda and their, like, resume. So, like a lot of churches, our pastor has got the skill, the skill, and the skill. Come and hear our pastor. He's got skills, you know. And the next thing you know, the whole church is about this guy. And, and, then, and so this is what was going on. And on top of that, the, the Corinthians were being manipulated financially, emotionally, and you can turn on Christian TV and see that happening all the time. People being told, you know, if you just give your money, we'll all get rich. When you find out that only the preacher is the one with the bends and the rolls and the big mansion. It's a huge pyramid scheme. Very similar to what was going on in, in Corinth. And so Paul's coming to address this because these guys have said, who is this apostle Paul that came and formed this church? I mean, he's no big deal. He's a not a great speaker. He's, you know, he, uh, I haven't seen or heard anything about him that makes him so wonderful. And so they're running Paul down and they're slandering his name. And so Paul feels on one hand he has to defend himself. But in the mix of all this, he says, you know, this boasting is foolish, but you people clearly put up with it. So I'm going to go ahead and lump into this. I'm going to get into this game. I mean, he sarcastically at a couple different times says some things that are just funny if you'll read the 11th chapter and the 12th chapter in their totality. I mean, he says things like, you're fools, so I guess I got to speak like a fool, so here we go. And I mean, he says some things to these people that I probably would get fired for saying. I mean, this guy's really got some sand. And so the Apostle Paul begins to line out his credentials for these folks. He begins to tell them about his his calling and his power and all the miracles and, and then the depth of his sufferings for Christ and he goes through all of these things. He was the most educated apostle, the most accomplished Pharisee. And in the end, he got to write one-third of the New Testament. So all of this is really heady stuff. But it turns out that this pride of accomplishment and this sense of uh, superiority that usually accompanies it was an ongoing struggle for the apostle Paul. Now keep in mind that Paul was not only one of the leading Christians of his day, but this particular honor that Paul got to see that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, was he got to see into heaven. Now, according to scripture, John, the revelator, is the only other person that's seen this kind of vision. And at the time, Paul was the only one. Not Peter, not James. Paul gets to go up into what he calls the third heaven, which 
For those of you who are wondering, and if you come from a Mormon background, there aren't three different heavens for three levels of superior Christians. It's talking about the atmosphere, the stratosphere, and eternity. And that's the third heaven where God lives. The heavenlies and the sky. But all that to say, Paul got to see in the third heaven. He got to see in the heaven, the holy of holies, things that he wasn't permitted to tell. But his whole conversation is, I can't even talk about that experience without getting proud about it. So I have to talk about it in the third person. So if you read the text, he says, I know a guy. Now, I don't know whether this guy had this actual experience or it was spiritual or whether it was physical. All I know is I know this guy had this thing and God blessed him and he didn't deserve it. And he's talking about himself in the third person because this ongoing battle of this honor being bestowed upon him even 14 years after the event itself, continued this inner struggle he had with pride, pride of being more accomplished than others. So you could see why this would be a challenge for him in addressing the super apostles of Corinth. Because on one hand, he's got to tell the truth about these guys and their manipulation of the congregation. And on the other hand, to do that, he's actually got to start to say, did you forget that I'm like the apostle stinking Paul? I mean, that's basically what he had to say. Uh, and so you can understand if that, like, if, if his nature would be, it makes me feel good when people exalt me, this would be a particularly difficult battle to fight. But you see in Paul's life, what's very exciting in this passage, as he talks about God's sovereign control over his, even his, his own pride, you see Paul speaking of this amazing intervening grace where God would allow a difficulty into his life that was so amazing, so difficult, so challenging that only by God's grace and strength could Paul even deal with the day-to-day misery that it was. The, The proverbial thorn in the flesh. Now, some commentators think it's a literal demon thorn in the flesh. That is not inconsistent with other things you might have heard about, you know, God allowing these demons to kind of bother Paul. It could have been a metaphor, too. It could have been a medical condition of some sort. It could have been something that was just an ongoing struggle with vice or something in his life that made Paul continuously sad about the broken nature of his heart. It could have been any of those things. The point was not what exactly the thorn in the flesh was. The point was whatever it was, Paul could not cope with this on a daily basis if he didn't depend on Jesus, if he didn't depend on on God. This is a very common experience, and I have to give you a window into my own soul today, and that would seem consistent with our passage of Scripture. This is a very common thing for Christian people in Christian leadership. You see, for me, friends, when things are going quote-unquote well, as culture would say it, now, in a church world, you've got to understand when a church pastor says things are going well, that means lots of people are coming around and we've got lots of money to deal with all the things that we want to do. There was a season in my life when I was in Florida where things were going well. We had planted a church and inside five years had 300 people and an abundance of money and we were building a building. And then things got not well for me. And the reason that whole process of a real, a real severe life crash took place for me was it started well before the crash ever began. The breakdown, if you want to call it, I can tell you more about it another time, was, was preceded by 
a, a, I would say a slippery slope. And ironically, I use a lot of S's in this example. The slippery slope starts like this. Things go well, things are going easy, and you begin to derive your self-worth from your success. When that go, And this could be true outside of ministry too. This is just kind of sort of how it goes for dopey pastors like me. Then your success begins to take root in your life. You begin to, be, you begin to depend on it for everything, including your security. It becomes how you feel good about yourself. It becomes how you feel good about your future. Success numerically, financially makes you start to think, you know, I, I really am safe, finally. This false security, inevitably, it's a short step to selfish ambition. Because you're depending on whatever it is other than Jesus, you begin to now put your agenda in life ahead of everybody else's. That selfish ambition breeds a self-centeredness. A self-centeredness inevitably breeds the self-dependence where you begin to think, I can handle this on my own. And it's evidenced by a person who does not have any relationships to speak of, any fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Their life is not marked by somebody who prays, not because it's a legalistic means of making God like you more, but it's not evidenced by somebody who's just interacting with Jesus and saying, you know, I'm looking to you to fill my life. I'm looking to depend on you for you to be everything to me. And this is the danger point. See, all of that takes place to get to the point where you are self-dependent. You've been deluded into thinking you can do this on your own. And what happens is you render yourself spiritually impotent. Then something horrible beyond your control happens and you've got no framework with which to deal with it. Something evil, you're involved in a spiritual battle and you have no spiritual weapons with which to wage this battle because you spent most of the last several years of your life depending on your own strength and your own gifts and your own successes. And so something terrible happens or something that you were living your life by gets taken from you like success or acclaim and the next thing you know you're crashing for me this is what happened what what I learned from this breakdown for me was that when I'm not looking daily to Jesus I am very easily convinced that I can handle this world in my own strength and then when God steps back from doing that which we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. We pray, God, restrain evil from our lives. When God says, you know what? You think you can do this on your own? Let's see how well you do. Just out of kindness for me to not foolishly think I can do this, he will sometimes just kind of back up and say, okay, I'm going to let you try to handle this on your own, and let's see how you do. Uh, One of my mentors, Ray Cortez, says this. He says, if God wants all hell to break loose, All he has to do is nothing because he's constantly holding our world together. I liken it to my experience on Christmas break. I put together a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, usually a complex one. And I got this trait from my father. Uh, It's just really restful for me. And so I'll sit over a table for days on end and put together a jigsaw puzzle on a table. And when that jigsaw puzzle is sitting on the table and it's clipped together, It looks like a really solid picture. But all you got to do is move the table or dump the thing onto the floor, and that jigsaw puzzle falls all apart. Looks like it did in the box, just just a bunch of pieces. 
Jesus is not a piece of the puzzle that makes up our life. Jesus is supposed to be the table on which our entire puzzle is built. And apart from that table, if you think you can handle it on your own, man, it's like holding together a jigsaw puzzle in the air. Just, I found out the hard way. Now, there's a risk to communicating brokenness, particularly for people in ministry. Dan Allender wrote a great book called Leading with a Limp. And he says this, the leader who admits personal failure often loses respect, risks being marginalized, and could very well be dismissed, either literally by losing his job or in practice by being excluded from the inner circle of power. Only the foolish invite honesty without being honest with themselves about its danger. To confess to yelling at your spouse or admitting that you manipulate meetings by being intense and verbal invites people to put you in a box and supplies them with information they could use later against you. I experienced this at our church in in Florida where I regularly communicated about my brokenness and my insensitivity and there was this one couple, there's always one, in a, in a church of 300 anyway, that w- felt it was their call to point out all the problems with the church. And so I would have to meet with them periodically. And uh, in these meetings, um, if the tables got turned and I said, well, let me address something about the way you're going about doing this, or let me address your perspective on something, immediately they would become defensive and they would say, well, you say in your sermons, you're not a very sensitive person. And so all of a sudden now I was sharing like, like real, like I'm the real pastor. I share real struggles. And that crud will work against you in some places, particularly in churches in the South. I'll, I'll just say, I have a, a leader within our Acts 29 movement that I admire greatly. And, and I don't admire him greatly because he's successful. He's one of the most successful in the country. Uh, while I say that, if you'll listen to his messages, you will hear from time to time uh, traces of arrogance in his voice. You'll hear him reference the size of his library or the size of his congregation or any number of things. And you think, well, doesn't that kind of repel you? And I'd say, yeah, but for the fact that he recognizes it. And, And with other pastors at conferences, he'll say, this is a huge struggle for me. I've seen him go on national TV and admit it. Pride is my big struggle. I've seen him confess in front of groups of pastors, I'm very sorry that this bleeds into what I do. See, that's why I want to hear what he has to say, not because he's not broken and fallen, but because he actually knows he's broken and fallen and knows that God is using him in spite of that. And this is what I'm talking about with regards to our Work in this world to share Christ's love with your friends or your family members, your co-workers. God isn't looking around for people who got it all together to use. He's just looking for people who are willing to be used, who are desirous of this. And this is the key to effective sharing of our faith. Now, I have two real quick things I want to share from the very passage that we looked at today just that you can take with you. And I would encourage you to embrace these, to, to, you know, to drink this in. All right, and the first is this authentic witnessing, and what I mean by that is sharing of your faith, is honest witnessing. So if you want to be authentic as a Christian, then it requires an honesty on your part. Paul says this in verses 5 and 6, I will boast about a man like that. And of course, he was talking in the third person about the guy who saw heaven. 
but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So, and look at this part. No one will think more of me than is warranted but what, but warranted by what I do or say. In other words, that people would have an honest appraisal of who I am, which means that if you and I are going to be people who uh, want to share our faith, it is required of us that we are willing to at least let people see the warts in addition to all of the wonderful things that Jesus is doing in our life. Unfortunately, by hiding our brokenness from others, we inadvertently communicate that the good news is that once you have your things together, once you are righteous, whatever the heck that means to the people in our world, then you can come to church and or enjoy the presence of God. See, if you don't say, I'm broken, I'm fallen, I, I'm sorry, I messed up, I'm, I, you know, I am fallen, then you are communicating by virtue of that that Jesus won't accept people until they're all together. Great book I'm reading, I would encourage you to read it. It's by Tullian Chvigen, saying his last name isn't of itself a challenge that I need the Holy Spirit's power for. Um, He is the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, and the book is called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. To reach people in our day, he says, the gospel will have to be distinguished from moralism, Because moralism is what most people outside the church think Christianity is all about. Rules and standards and behavior and cleaning yourself up. This is supposed to say millions of people, both inside and outside the church, believe that the essential message of Christianity is, if you behave, then you belong. From a human standpoint, that's why most people reject Christianity. Now, if the concern that some would have would be that by talking about grace a lot, that somehow means that we aren't concerned about trying to please God with the way we live or care for the culture in which we live or meet the needs of the poor or correct injustices, let's be very clear about this. We are saying to people that those things are going to happen once you are close to God but you are never going to get close to God on your own good works. We are only going to change in the presence of the Father. This is my favorite analogy. And because my kids aren't here, I feel good about sharing it. When I was in high school, I had a girlfriend, and she and I were at her house, and we were doing what high school seniors, boys and girls do in houses alone without parents around. And we were sitting on the couch, very close to each other. And... uh, and, you know, in the moment of temptation, in the moment that I thought, okay, this is it. I, I've got a choice to make here about how much or how little she and I are going to engage in activity that would be displeasing to God. At that moment, I was filled with a power and a strength that I had not known previously. A power and strength that got me to move away from her to the other side of the couch. And that was the sound of the garage door opener and her parents coming home. <laughs> Amazing power in the presence of her father. Uh, the strength that you, I just never knew I had. Very similarly, friends, I'll tell you that we're not going to desire to please God outside of his presence. If we're not meditating on his presence, enjoying his presence, if his presence doesn't mean everything to us, then when temptation comes, we're going to be like, so what? In the presence of God, by his grace, you and I then start thinking, 
All right, this would be odd. God, I know you're here. Okay, now I've got to make a choice. Do I want to please you or not because you're here? Anything we would do that would not be done to please God but instead would be to try to earn his favor doesn't please God. We're not trying to manipulate him. We're trying to love him. But for anyone, and I mean anyone, including preachers, to share that they're a finished product or imply so by hiding their own struggles with sin is to do a great disservice to the gospel message. And to be perfectly blunt, you sin by doing so. Because one of the Ten Commandments is that we not bear false witness. And if you're pretending to be holy when you're not, you have two choices. You can be perfectly holy, which will never happen, or you can be honest about the fact that you're in process and that it's not because of how much progress you've made that you're at peace with God. It's because of the grace of God. Authentic witnessing is honest witnessing. Second thing I'll share with you today is this. Authentic witnessing is humble witnessing. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. In two verses, the word weak comes up four times. Weak, weak, weak. Now, I have to tell you, this is the, where, in my experience, the rubber meets the road for a lot of people who don't want to follow Jesus. Because if you have to posture yourself as weak and broken, you might as well tell somebody that, that they're going to completely change and be running against the current of our culture because to proclaim yourself weak and broken is the central threat to the human soul, at least to our fleshly soul. But it is the only humble and honest appraisal that you and I can come to when we think about how really selfish we are. Real Christian witnessing is not supposed to impress someone with your holiness so that they'll see the holiness of God and determine that they need to be holy too. Authentic witnessing is being humble enough to share your weaknesses so that the work of Christ to rescue you comes to the forefront and a person is powerfully changed by the hope of grace that can be given to them. The power of the gospel is demonstrated and activated through humble reliance on Jesus. And the more unqualified we as believers feel, the more opportunities it gives God to be glorified through us. I have to tell you that this is the essence of our mission. We're saying we want to see believers revived. Does anybody in this room have the skill to do that? Uh, I don't. I don't have the ability to have somebody's soul be brought to life. That's a spiritual thing. I have a degree in communications, and I teach communications, and you'd think, well, if anybody has skills to communicate, communication does not change a heart. You can be uber eloquent and not see a thing happen. This is a spiritual thing. The only thing that brings you and I to life is God's presence. Now, does he speak through people? Sure. 
But the Apostle Paul stated himself in a couple of different passages that it's about him, the Holy Spirit, his power, and not the eloquence of the speaker. That is particularly true for you and I if we feel like we want to be evangelists or people who share our faith. A couple of scriptures I'd like to read to you where Paul speaks to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul says this. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you, there it is again, in weakness and fear, with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Is this how you feel when you're sharing your faith, like trembling sometimes? I know I have in the past. I'm trying to introduce or talk to somebody about Jesus, and I get a little shaky, a little nervous. This is what Paul is saying. I didn't come to you as this brazen superstar. Come out and hear the apostle Paul. He was totally like, uh. He wasn't impressing everyone with his rhetorical skills. St. Augustine, he was not. He was simply saying, I'm going to talk about Jesus alive and watch the power of God sweep through someplace so they would know if that guy is the vehicle by which the gospel can come and change my life, then God can use anybody. And I got to tell you, this is where God wants pastors. I joke about it, but every now and again, somebody will say to me, man, I learned more about God's grace by looking at your life than anybody I've ever met. And that is kind of a backhanded compliment, but in some ways, that's, that's exactly what God wants. I mean, if I can be a minister, friends, so can you. I mean, this is the real, what Paul is saying. If God, I'm the worst of sinners. Look what he says here in First uh, Timothy, verse, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. This one's going to be a little harder to get to for me because my Bible's falling apart. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. In other words... (laughs) I'm so bad, I'm so broken, I'm so fallen that people need to see in my life and in yours, if God can save them, he can save anybody. That there's obviously, if God lets guys like Chuck be ministers, there's unlimited patience in in God's economy. This is my mission in life, is to be as real with you and honest with you and at the same time not freak you out. Um, But to say to you, I am further along on the path than some of you towards Jesus, but not that much farther. And I'm as prone to falling on my face as you are. And if you'd like to follow me up the hill to experience the grace of God actively in our lives, then I'm, I'd be thrilled to have you join with me. And together, we can pursue and follow after God. But if anything is going to happen in this church in terms of our own revival, 
the revival of our friends who are Christians who quit going to church a long time ago, the reawakening of friends who don't know Jesus, if we're going to have any effect in culture where our city will say, look at what Jesus is doing through his body, the church at PRISM, those things are all going to take the miracle of God's presence. We have not the ability to do this on our own. It's going to take continuous dependence on him. This past Christmas, we were coming back from uh, my sister and brother's house in La Cunada, and uh, my wife and I and my, uh, our two children were in the car, and as we were driving down the 210 back to our house, we drove past Lake Avenue Church, which is during my sabbatical year of 2009 where our family attended church. Then in 2010, we obviously started Prism Church. And during that transition, my kids had asked me and their mother, and of course I was trying to be superpower dad, and they asked if they could just go to Lake Avenue. And for any number of reasons, uh, I said in my head, no, you need to come and be a part of Prism. And so I, I made them come on Sunday night. And I think at some point I finally said, well, if you want to get up and go in the morning, sure, but you're going to go on Sunday nights with us. And after two years of struggling as a church, trying to start a youth ministry, it didn't go, and them being the only high school students in our church when it was all said and done, I started to feel badly that I didn't let my kids go to Lake Avenue because I thought, you know, I, I wanted two more bodies in the church. Or I wanted my kids to be there for emotional support. Or I'm not exactly sure what was driving me to make my kids. I, I guess on the surface I said, families need to worship together. Rah, rah, rah. And I, it sounded all spiritual and holy. But deep down inside, I have to confess to you all that I don't think I was looking out for my kids very much. I think I was looking out for how I felt about them not going to my church, which in and of itself could be a problem just referring to it as my church. But as we're driving past Lake Avenue, I got this sense that I needed to say I was sorry to my kids. And of course, my first reaction to that is to say, nah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, that's water under the bridge. Why bring that up again? You know what I mean? You know, I, got a, I got a lot of reasons to not rehash that thing. You know, everything's fine. But I couldn't get away from that sense in my own heart that I needed to be honest with my kids. You think, you know, does good parenting mean you never make mistakes? No. Good parenting is being willing to admit when you screw up and show them that God's grace is big enough to forgive even their messed up father, who, by the way, they are real sure is not holy and, you know, strong. So I said to them, Nick and Holly, I'm sorry. And Nick, of course, being the guy that he is, goes, it's not like we're sitting around thinking about that, no, you're whatever, you know. And Holly's like, we forgive you, you know. God bless her. She's the honest one in the bunch, you know what I mean? And I'm like, well, thank you for forgiving me, Holly. And Nick, I guess that was some kind of attempt that we forgive you. Um, thanks for the effort. The gospel frees you and I to be 100% honest, both about where we are in life. It frees us from having to perform for everybody in our lives. It frees us from having to pretend for everybody in our lives. It frees us from having to portray ourselves as really fluent in all things theological. It frees us to be able to say, I don't know the answer to that question. I, what I do know is I was blind and now I see. What I do believe is that I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is alive. 
And that has changed my life. I have a relationship with him. And I'd be more than happy to take some time and look up your questions, but for right now, all I can tell you is that I I follow Jesus. This, friends, is what authentic Christianity is. And it's the only thing that's going to work if we're going to reach this world and more in particular our friends for Christ. So let's celebrate the gospel as we go to communion this morning. Father, I'm thankful for all the ways that you've blessed our our church and I would pray that as we look to the sacrament this morning that it would be a picture of exactly what it is that you have done for us. You have made a way for us to enter into your presence without fearing that we aren't uh, working like and doing our best.